Chronicles 31 and 32. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God, in every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and his commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. And these things, and these acts of faithfulness, after these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city. And they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? They set to work resolutely and built up the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it, he built another wall, and he strengthened the millow in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together to him in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an army of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, if you brought a Bible with you or you got it on your phone, open up to Second Chronicles 29, where we're going to be today, and feel free to pull the sermon outline out as well to follow along. Um, if you haven't been here in a while, we've been going through the year of the Bible together. Uh, we've been reading from Genesis to Revelation. I hope it's been a helpful time for you. I know that uh, some of us are a bit behind. Some of us are a lot behind. Over the next couple weeks, uh, we're going to be moving into a, a new section of Scripture, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, sort of three uh, history books that are kind of grouped together that you're going to read over the next three weeks at home, and we'll, we'll talk about here in the sermons. So if you're, you know, in 1 Samuel somewhere or in Deuteronomy somewhere and you're way behind and you've kind of given up, it's a great time to hit the reset button to start over in Ezra 1 tomorrow and uh, follow along as we go through these next three books together. They're, they're pretty readable. Uh, the stories can be pretty compelling, uh, pretty understandable. I, I hope that you'll jump in the next few weeks if you've kind of gotten out of the habit of reading the Bible together. Well, but today we're in 2 Chronicles. It's towards the end of uh, what's known as the history section of Scripture. And we're going to talk today about a significant figure, a guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the godly kings in Judah's history, and he's almost unparalleled in terms of how much reform and renewal he brings into Israel's life. He's a king that all the other kings are sort of graded against as someone that they should be like. And yet, in Hezekiah's story, what's so striking is that the Assyrians invade. Ty read for us a moment ago from uh, 2 Chronicles 32 at the end of Hezekiah's life, and it has this really striking line that starts it. It says, after all these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invaded. That's one of those verses that your eye can kind of gloss over, but as you think about it, that seems so unusual and so wrong, right? Are the Assyrians really invading during the time of such a godly king? Are the Assyrians really coming during a time when everything is being done correctly? You know, aren't the Assyrians supposed to invade when the wicked kings are there? I mean, that's how the Old Testament usually goes, right? When there's a good king, things go well. When there's a bad king, God brings in the Philistines or the Canaanites or the Perizzites or the Jebusites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The list goes on and on and on, right? 
of ways that God tries to use pain in order to bring about repentance. So what's the deal with Hezekiah? Why would the Assyrians come during the godly reign of one of the best kings in Israel's history? Now, that may not be a question that keeps you up at night, but there's a corollary question that a lot of us wrestle with, which is, how could such bad things happen to such good people? A lot of us have a belief, maybe a very deep belief, that if we do the right things in life, things will go well for us. If we're pious, if we trust God, if we avoid uh, sinning in, in certainly egregious ways, then things should go pretty well for us in life. Last week, Robin talked about that in her great story on Mother's Day, which she did a wonderful job with, and I hope you guys got a chance to hear. She talked about how earlier in her Christian life, she carried with her this deep belief that as long as she did the right thing and was a good Christian woman, that things would go well for her in life. And when that didn't happen, there arose a lot of pain and a lot of bitterness towards God. The same thing happens in a lot of our hearts. We carry this belief that as long as we do the right thing, or at least we do better than the people around us, that God should make life easy for us. And then inevitably, stories like Hezekiah's come into view. Now, don't get me wrong. Most of the time, when, things, when you do the right thing, good things happen. That's what Proverbs teaches us. That's what a lot of the wisdom literature teaches us. When you save, you tend to get wealthier, right? When you uh, keep the Ten Commandments, your relationships tend to go better. When, you're, uh, when you engage in a life that reflects God's ways, it tends to align more usually with things going well in life. But not always, right? The rogue waves are there. And just like Hezekiah gets invaded by the Assyrians, the godly people in our life sometimes inflict the pains and hurts of this world or are inflicted with the pains and hurts of this world. So why is that? How can we make sense of the hurts and the pains and the Assyrians invading? That's what we're going to talk about with Hezekiah today. For those of you guys who want to frame where Hezekiah is in history, he ruled from about 715 B.C. to about 687 B.C., or to put it differently, he reigned about 300 years after David and about 200 years after Asa, who we talked about last week. Asa was the king who brought about a spiritual turnaround in Israel, but it's been about 200 years since then. There's been some good and bad kings in that time, but you can think about 200 years ago from now. Like That's a lot of time for moral and spiritual decay to happen, and that's what's happened in Judah. And it especially happened under the reign of Hezekiah's father, a very wicked king named Ahaz. Ahaz boarded up the temple, he kicked out the Levites and priests from their service. He took the money that was in the temple and used it to buy off the Assyrians and try to keep them from coming into Israel over the objections of the prophets of God. And most wickedly, Ahaz sacrificed one of his own children on an altar to a Canaanite god. Ahaz was a wicked guy. And Hezekiah comes on the heels of his father, a wicked and ungodly man, and brings about the great spiritual turnaround of his generation. So much so that Hezekiah is described in these terms that I think all of us would love on our tombstone one day. In 2 Chronicles 29.2, it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. It's a striking line because David obviously isn't his direct father. Um, it's not his first generation father. David was about 300 years before him. But David is the the measuring line that all of the future kings would be judged against. And Hezekiah is the perfect, or is the best representation of David to come after him. He's the most like David, and the one who will most fully point us to the greater son of David, Jesus. 
Hezekiah is the one who inherits the spiritual depravity of his father and at 25 years old becomes king over Judah. And he's the one who inherits an impossible spiritual situation. But it says in the first year, in the first month of his reign, he makes this a priority. Look at verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Hezekiah, as a 25-year-old, set about his first priority to be able to reform and to bring back renewal into the worship of Israel. Next year during the presidential election, you'll hear a lot of people promise what they're going to do in their first 100 days. Who am I kidding? The presidential election started like three years ago. But um, <laughs> the, the reason people say that, in the first 100 days I'm going to do this, this, and this, or on my first day in office I'm going to sign this piece of legislation, this piece of legislation, is because whatever you put as your first priority as a president says something about what you value most deeply. For Hezekiah in his first month as king, what he does is we got to bring back the renewal of the worship of God. The Assyrians were on his doorsteps. There was geopolitical problems everywhere around him. He had family issues that he had to deal with, but his first priority was the worship of God and bringing renewal to the people. And he's wonderfully thorough about that. And, uh, I love Hezekiah's example of leadership. We could probably do a whole series or at least a whole sermon just on Hezekiah the leader because you can think about like, man, how do you reverse 200 years of moral and spiritual decline for a people? How do you give people hope that worshiping God is worthwhile? I mean, this is a question that we're all asking in our culture today. And Hezekiah in his generation does a remarkable job. Look at what he does in verse four. He brought in the priests and the Levites and and the gloss there might be who had stopped being priests. (laughs) And he assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, hear me, Levites. And let me me crack his voice a little bit because he's a young man who's speaking to men his father and grandfather's age in a generation where age was incredibly important. Hear me, Levites, right? (laughs) Like this, like do not, (laughs) to use the words from the New Testament, do not despise me for my youth, right? I'm gonna call you to account here. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Carry out the filth from the holy place. And then he aligns with them, right? In verse 6. This is fascinating. That's right. That, in Spanish, we got a direct translation here, the whole sermon. Yeah, that's great. For our fathers, do you hear that? Our fathers, not your fathers, our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and they've turned their backs. This problem is deep and it's your fault and it's my fault and let's solve it together. Hezekiah is a great example of leadership. Everything rises and falls on the leader. And throughout Israel's history, we see kings who lead God's people astray and lead them to God, ultimately pointing to the fact that we're going to need a king who establishes a new kingdom that will last forever. That's a little foreshadowing of Jesus. But Hezekiah is the king who brings the people to a place of repentance. And he says, if we don't do this, our sons and daughters will be enslaved. If we don't do this, everything will fall, around, fall apart around us. And he says in verse 10, it's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. Hezekiah is such a great leader because he calls the people to what's better. And he says, this is what you value. This is what we need to do. If we don't do it, we're going to experience grave consequences. Who's with me, right? It's sort of a scene from Gladiator or Braveheart or something. Spiritual leadership is like that. 
It's being willing to say, this is the direction I'm going. Come with me. And the people go with him, and they follow him in all his renewals and his reforms. They reestablish the temple. They reestablish the priesthood. They reestablish Passover, which they'd forgotten about. How do you forget about Passover, right? Like, how do you forget about Easter or Christmas or the 4th of July? Like, how do you so deeply, how deeply depraved does the spiritual life of your country have to be that you forget your core holidays right, that have been with you for generations and generations? This is what Hezekiah is dealing with, and he calls them back through the force of his personality, will, and all his resources with the help of God and turns around the spiritual life of Israel. He's described this way at the end of chapter, end of chapter 30. The whole assembly of Judah, the priests, the Levites, the whole assembly that came out of Israel, the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel, the sojourners who lived in Judah, let me just gloss that for us. Everybody, right? We could have just summarized and said, everybody rejoiced. What kind of king enjoys a 100% approval rating? So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to the holy habitation in heaven. It reminds me of the proverb that says, when the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. And that's what Hezekiah is like. He's spoken of in such high terms and in such elevated terms in Chronicles as well as in 2 Kings and Isaiah because he leads the people back to God. And as a result, the people prosper. The whole country experiences safety and prosperity. As it says at the end of chapter 31, um, he sought God, he did, he did with all his heart, and he prospered, and the people prospered. And, you know, I kind of want to end the sermon here. This would be the happy sermon. Like, Hezekiah did what was right. He led the people back to God. The nation prospered. There was peace. Everything was good. That's what we should do. Be more like Hezekiah. Close in prayer, right? That'd be an easy sermon. Like that, I mean, it'd be short, which you don't have to laugh about that. Um, <laughs> but what I find so fascinating about Hezekiah's story is that that's not where it ends, right? Hezekiah doesn't just experience peace and prosperity all his days. But Assyria still invades. Second Chronicles 32.1 After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. I don't know, for some reason, that verse sticks, sticks so much in my mind. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib came and invaded. Right? Like, this is not the narrative that we're expecting to see in Scripture. We're expecting Hezekiah to do the right thing and to be rewarded, and yet he does the right thing, and Assyria invades anyway. Assyria invades during one of the best kings in Israel's history. How is that supposed to happen? Now, there's a human answer to that, right? A, a, a historical answer. I mentioned Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, had been buying off the Assyrians to keep them at bay, using the resources in the temple in a very unfaithful way, but in an effective way to buy off the Assyrian mob from coming in. Um, and Hezekiah, one of his first acts is, we're not going to do that. Like, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to trust God. We're not going to trust wealth. And we're certainly not going to offend God by taking things out of the temple and sending them to Assyria anymore. So th there's a human reason. Like, you do that, the mob comes after you. You do that, the Assyrians come after you. Right? So there's a human answer, but there's a theological answer as well, right? That even in the midst of godliness and faithfulness, the testing comes. It comes for Hezekiah, it comes for Jesus, and it comes in our life as well. Sometimes it may come directly from the hand of God. Sometimes it may come indirectly from what God allows. 
But always in life, pain comes, even to those who are righteous. Before we get into Hezekiah's response, I just want us to think about that and sit with that in a minute. Like, after these acts of faithfulness, the Assyrians invaded. Some of us, maybe, maybe some of us here, are deeply bitter against God because we thought we had a deal. That if we went to church, if we were a good Christian husband, if we were a good Christian daughter, if we were a good friend, then the Assyrians would never invade. And I want you to hear from God's word that that's not how life is. Right? That, that's not the deal that God has made. And so there's no sense in being bitter towards him for something that he's never promised. Now, he promises that he'll use all things together for good. Right? That's in Romans 8, 28. He promises that he will hold you, that, that the testing your faith will create endurance and perseverance. He promises that he loves you, that your eternity is secure with him. But he never promises the Assyrians won't invade. Well, sometimes we can do everything right and pain can still come. How is Hezekiah going to respond? Well, Hezekiah, whose name literally means the Lord is my strength, responds by doing his best to defend Jerusalem. He uh, figures out a way to cut off the water supply to the invading Assyrian army. He establishes outer walls and strengthens them. He builds armaments. Because of his consistency and his integrity, the people follow him in everything he calls them to. He's cashing in all his chips and saying, we're going to defend this city together. And they say, we're with you everywhere you go. Like David before him, he has mighty men who follow him where he leads. And like Nehemiah after him, he prays and posts a guard and gives this speech in verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an army of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Like David, his father before him, he looks at an overwhelming adversary, this time not Goliath, but 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And like David before him says, I am not outnumbered because I have God on my side. And we have God on our side. And the people of Judah, to their credit, put their faith and trust, I'm going to use those terms intentionally, in the son of David, who will defend them and protect them, even as we put our faith in the son of David today. The Lord is with us to fight our battles, Hezekiah says. But that's not the only voice the people of Judah are going to hear. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends his uh, chief propaganda officer, a man we know elsewhere from scripture is known as the Rabshaka, which is an awesome name for a dog or a fantasy football team, um, <laughs> to call out to the people of Israel in Hebrew and try to wage a disinformation campaign to get them to lose faith and to be discouraged and to give up. And the Rabshaka calls out to the people uh, in the language that they speak in order to go around Hezekiah and cause them to lose faith. It says in 2 Chronicles 32.10, On what are you trusting that you would endure this siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he would give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord our God will deliver you from the hand of the king of Assyria? Or, to put it another way, did God really say, right, as Satan told Adam and Eve, or to put it a different way, as Satan says to Jesus, does God's word really say that the Rabshakeh takes this form of the tempter who's trying to convince the people that there's no reason to trust in what God could do? 
on what are you trusting that you would bother to endure this testing? If you jump down to 14, verse 14, he continues, who among the gods of the nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Be prepared for the word hand a lot because whose hands are in control is going to be an important theme of these next few verses. He goes on at the end of verse 15 to say, how much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? Uh, Sennacherib and the Assyrian army is attempting to cause the people to lose faith, to say the, the powerful of the world decide what's true. Who do you think you are that God would defend you or care about you? You better take control of your own destiny and not trust in someone else to say that he'll protect you. You should avoid pain at all costs, right? There's no reason to go through temptation or testing. Just give up. Remember, no pain, no pain. You're prideful if you think God's going to deliver you. If you think that you're special, that God cares about you, you're fooling yourself. No one else gets, uh, gets to avoid the consequences of the Assyrian army. Why should you? And these are the voices we hear in our generation as well. We hear them, as verse 18 says, with a loud voice trying to frighten us and terrify us that we may be destroyed. And in verse 19 it says, they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the people of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. We got the word hands there again. Remember that as we come towards the end. What I want you to notice in this passage from Sennacherib's taunts and his uh, acts of blasphemy is this message that we hear even today from the world, that to trust that God cares about us, to trust that God loves us, to trust that God is powerful enough to protect us, and ultimately to trust that the king that we are uh, putting our faith in, Jesus Christ, is able to secure us from the cares of this world. We hear the message over and over that we're fools for doing that. So what happens to to the Assyrian army? Now, you guys know, you're in church, this is a Bible lesson, I'm a pastor, like, this is going to have a happy ending, right? This would be a terrible sermon if just at the end, like, yeah, and Sennacherib destroyed Jerusalem, and uh, it's just a lesson that you can't trust people. Like, it would be like the worst sermon. <laughs> no, so, so you know that, you have some in, in, insight in that. But for a moment, sort of suspend that knowledge. Imagine you're on the wall there in Jerusalem, and you've heard Hezekiah's speech, and you've heard Sennacherib's speech, and you're trying to decide, what are you going to do? Is, is God really come through in situations like this? Or do you just kind of have to look out for yourself? Like, is there a reason to trust that God's really going to care about you and about your people enough? That, that Jerusalem is worth defending, that you're worth defending, that God cares about you at all, right? Well, I, I don't know how you'd a- react. I, honestly, I don't know how I would react until that moment. You know, we're not the ones with 185,000 Assyrian soldiers uh, outside of our walls threatening to use their military authority to destroy us, but for Hezekiah, it must have been a terrifying moment. And this is how he responds in verse 20. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this, and they cried to heaven. Remember that word cried for later. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land, and when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword or used their hands to strike him with the sword. Might be another way to translate that. You can uh, 
sort of see in what happens here, sort of what results. The way that God vindicates Hezekiah, he vindicates his people, and he counters the narrative that we hear so often from the world, right? That the powerful are the ones who win. The ones who take care of themselves are the ones who win. And we see in Hezekiah's story the ultimate act of faith, not just that he was willing to defend himself, but much more importantly, that God is the one who defended him and defended the people. The Lord saved Hezekiah, verse 22 says, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all of his enemies, and he provided for them on every side. Ultimately, it's God's hands who are in control, not the hands of Sennacherib, not the hands of the Assyrians, not the hands of our opponents and adversity and testing today. And ultimately, it would be in the hands of Jesus that we would entrust ourselves. Because Hezekiah's story is valuable, it's important, it's a, a great lesson in faithfulness, but it's only, its ultimate value is to point us to Jesus. You know, just as Hezekiah is the king who brings much-needed spiritual renewal to a lost people, Jesus is the one who comes to all peoples to bring, faith, uh, to, to bring us to a place of faith in him. Just as Hezekiah is the one who stands up to those who are in authority and says, we have to go a different direction. Jesus is the one who would be courageous in his day, standing up to those who are in authority, even to the point of his own persecution and death. Just as Hezekiah is the one who endures in the face of overwhelming military occupation and invasion, Jesus is the one who will endure even to the point of his return in Revelation. And my, my favorite pointer from Hezekiah to Jesus um, is the way that Hezekiah cries out to heaven and angels come and protect and defend Jerusalem. Hezekiah cries out to heaven and prays to God and asks that he would defend them. And uh, God sends an angel to strike down the Assyrian army. The reason that's my favorite is because what does Peter tell Jesus to do um, in the garden? Remember on the night Jesus is betrayed and he's uh, arrested by the Roman forces, Peter tries to defend with force. He tries to protect the new Jerusalem, right? He tries to protect the same city through the force of an invading army. And what does Jesus say? Unlike Hezekiah, he doesn't cry out. He says, Peter, don't you know I could call down from heaven thousands of angels? But unlike Hezekiah before him, not that what Hezekiah did was wrong, but, but Jesus says the greater Hezekiah says, I, I don't need to do that. And when he's on the cross and he's dying for our sins and people say, let him call down angels to save him, what does Jesus do? Rather than crying out to heaven like Hezekiah before him, he abstains. And, and just as Hezekiah is vindicated from death, Jesus is vindicated after death. Jesus dies the death that we deserve on the cross and his vindication comes on the far side of death. Of course, Jesus experiences the deliverance of angels, but it's at the tomb, not before the tomb, where the angel says, the one who you're looking for is no longer here. This is why it's so important. You know, Hezekiah's vindication is a sign that we can trust that God is in control and will protect us. But Jesus' vindication from the grave shows us that no matter what testing and pain and weeping we go through, even the grave is not the final verdict on who we are in Christ. And this can give us hope for our own trials. That as Psalm 35 says, Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. That we see in Hezekiah that there is a hope on the far side of weeping. But in Jesus, we see that there is an even greater hope 
when weeping even leads to death. So when the Assyrians invade, and even when it seems like the Assyrians win, in Christ we still have hope that God ultimately will deliver us and that we'll spend eternity with him. A couple questions for you to think about and pray about this week. Uh, first one, so as you sort of think about Hezekiah's story, you might think about it in terms of like what's encouraging for you, and you also might think about what's challenging for you. You might think, you know, how would I have responded if I was in his shoes? Like, what's my faith really like? You know, if, if I was put in that point of testing, how would I have how would I have reacted? And this is not an act of shame or an act of right answer or wrong answer. Just a chance for you to explore with the Spirit. Like, God, I'd like to be someone like Hezekiah who's faithful, but I don't know that I'd respond that way. Can you show me the reality of my heart? Show me that I'm loved by you and, and that I, I want to be someone who has faith like that in the next five years, 10 years, 30 years of my life. And then secondly, I, I'd encourage you to turn your mind towards Jesus as well in prayer and say, God, how can I see Jesus' vindication as a, as a means of hope in my life. Maybe if you're especially struggling with hope right now or struggling with a, a sense that God cares for you or cares about suffering you're going through, God, would you turn my eyes towards Jesus as, a, as the righteous one who went through trials and would you help me see him as the source of my ultimate hope in you? Well, let's close our time in prayer. God, we are so grateful for Hezekiah's story and his faithfulness. Um, God, I pray that um, his model of leadership would be one that we would all follow. And we're so grateful that, that he did what was right in your heart. Um, and especially that he did what was right, not just when it was easy, but especially when it was hard. God, that's what I want to be like. That's what we want to be like. We want to be people who follow you, not just in the easy times, but in the hard ones as well. And in Jesus, we see an even greater example of what it means to be faithful. So would you help us to follow him and, and to, uh, to be his disciples this week? It's in his name we pray. Amen.